What up, all you beautiful Misfits and Rejects out there? Thank you for joining me for episode 194 of Misfits and Rejects. In today's episode, I spoke with James Shramko from superfastbusiness.com. James is a business coach who helps businesses in that six-figure range make it super fast to the seven-figure range. That's his sweet spot. That's where he excels the best. He's definitely taken other businesses to a way higher level, but he finds himself achieving the most in that range. He also has the Super Fast Business Podcast, which is a wealth of information, and he's someone who's been in the online space a long time and understands how to grow online businesses to levels that the business owners themselves might have needed to take quite a bit longer to get to without his help. I have no doubt you're going to get a lot out of this episode, and you get to hear the steps he took in order to grow his empire to where it's at today, how he perceives wealth, and how he perceives lifestyle design. So please, if you're a first-time listener, pull out that phone, hit subscribe on whatever podcast player you're listening to this on. If you like this episode, James and I sure would appreciate it if you shared it with a friend, if you gave it a five-star rating, and if you left a comment, I will be happy to get right back to you. So thank you for joining us today. Please sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode with James Shramko. Welcome to Misfits and Rejects, a podcast about the lifestyle design of expatriates, travelers, entrepreneurs, and adventurers. I'm your host, Chapin Cruder. Enjoy. I didn't fit in America. With cocaine, there's just always too many guns and too many bad attitudes. I quit the limiting stories. Really try to overcome that fear. And right there, for any of your listeners, a lot of what I was to do in the rest of my life was formulated by the fact I just went and did it. Welcome to another episode of Misfits and Rejects. Today, I'm joined by James Shramko from superfastbusiness.com. James, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you for taking the time, man. Uh, how's your day going in Australia right now? Uh, it's been good. I, I start early today. It's my last work day of the week. And I had a. I usually deal with the East Coast USA market first thing. And then I work my way back across uh, to this side of the world and finish out the evening. So... I think it's going to be a good day. Got a, a little bit of a surf scheduled. I'll cook some food and spend some family time. I like to chunk my work blocks in the morning and then in the evening and have most of the day off. That's great. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the whole ethos of what you do as a super fast business founder is trying to help people understand that you can have online business, make good money without having to work, you know, the 14 hour days as a lot of these entrepreneurs who are successful describe like 14 hour days drives me crazy. Cause I don't have the focus for that. Like I'm a four to six hour a day kind of guy, you know, can you talk us a little bit more about, you know, super fast business and what you do? Yeah. Well, you know, just to that point, I could easily work a 14 hour day. I had to put limits on myself uh, because I wanted to redefine what success means. And, for me, working 14 hours a day and having a lot of money doesn't mean success anymore, but it might have meant that 10 or 20 years ago. So I think that's really important to think about what success actually means. And I had one mentor who used to really sort of drum this into me. He's like, what does wealth mean? And, of course, a lot of people just think money. Some people think fame and, and uh, you know, they want a lot of followers and a big audience. For me, I, I want health. I want surfing. I want family, relationships. I still want money, but I want to get it in a more leveraged way. And I'm happy to to not get as much money, but to have a lot more surfing. For example, if I couldn't surf every day, then I I wouldn't be any, you know, I'd be less happy than if I made an extra $2 million a year. 
wouldn't it wouldn't make me uh, the it wouldn't make me the person I am because as you know like you, surfing's not something you do it's it's um who you are when it becomes ingrained into your um, culture so with super fast business that has had so many iterations since I started that in 2009 it's one of the few online communities that's been around before Facebook groups so I've seen a lot of things come and go in that time I've seen, you know, everyone's got groups and communities now. It was a bit rarer in 2009. Originally, it started as a support group for people who bought a high-level affiliate marketing program. And I wanted to take people through the course they'd bought and make sure they got results for it because I knew they would spend $2,000 on a course and not understand most of it because the guy that was selling the course was making $100,000 a day. He was doing high-level CPA marketing. So I made it the bonus. If they bought the course through me, then I would look after them in this community. And I had 78 people purchase the course and I got my affiliate commission. So that funded their first 60 days. I invited them to stay on if they wanted and most of them did. And in the years past that, I I started speaking on uh, stage, talking about building your own website and having your own online business. And back in my workshops then, we used to bring along a laptop and I'd teach them how to buy a domain, choose a market, uh, join an affiliate offer, build their website, and then start promoting it all in a two-day workshop. It was like crazy. And then from there, we started going to you know more mature businesses who were offering services like search engine optimization, website development, so a lot of agencies. So I had a few super affiliates, a few agencies, um, these days, we have a mix. Mostly people with info products or agencies, service-type businesses, uh, make up my membership. I definitely help them think about what success might look like for them. I definitely help them find leverage. There's a, a few points that I work on uh, in particular that keep coming up if you want me to cover those. Absolutely, by all means. Uh, so the thing that I used to be really good at from my old job as a general manager uh, running a business was I was quite good with strategy and pricing and and products because we learnt a lot about that from Mercedes Benz and in a retail automotive dealership it's super competitive. You've got uh, there was like seven people that the customer could buy from within a twenty minute drive the exact same product, and that's not even thinking about all the other products they could buy <laughs> like all our competitors who are literally next door to us. They could buy seven different types of products within walking distance. So super commoditized, hardcore, old, established industry. So I learned a lot about pricing, products, strategies. I learned a lot about selling. I learned a lot about building a team, hiring, training, recruiting. And then the last part was optimizing myself, like how to be a high performer. When there's uh, 10 salespeople, how can you be the top performer and, you know, the other ones are just average. So personal optimization. So these are the themes that keep cropping up in my world. And that's what I bring to the table for the entrepreneurs who I work with. That's really interesting. And how did you decide to transition all that knowledge into an online enterprise? I mean, when you started, the online game was still, I think, kind of budding for most of the population around the world. Um, a handful of people saw and took advantage of it, you being one of them, like how did you see that angle and how did you know it was a good time to apply what you had learned through Mercedes, I believe you said, 
um, and help other people with it. Well, you know, in 2005, when I started online, I thought I might be too late because it was already 10 years old. Um, when I had my first kid in 1995, I had my first computer and I used to look up things on the internet when I was in his nursery. Like back then, it was good for looking up uh, Loch Ness monster theories, UFOs, Sasquatch, and spy shots of upcoming car models. And there was like games you could play online, like Civilization and stuff. So I saw that, but it was a bit too early. I realized, you know, you know, to, to dial up and it took forever and there was early versions of website crawlers. My cousin was heavily into the internet and was in a tech company, like Computer Associates, I think it was called. He he put me onto the internet. Then I, a few years later, I didn't have a computer for a while uh, and then I was using them at work and I could see some changes happening. I noticed customers started coming to the dealership and they knew all about the new models. And I remembered, oh, yeah, you can look this stuff up online. You can look up bulletin boards and stuff. And then uh, the state general manager used to talk about, you know, the internet and how he really wanted to push it away and, and um, drop down its significance and dismiss it as a fad. And I thought, why is he putting so much attention on this? I'm, I'm skeptical. And the other thing is my parents were in the travel industry at this time and people were booking their own tickets online instead of coming to the travel agency. And that was really impacting the way they do business. So I figured, you know what, I'm good at selling. I'm good at marketing. I would like to figure out how to build a website because I think it's important to know this. I think there's something happening with this internet thing. And I think it, it you know, rather than just sell this one product in this local market area, uh, what if I could sell any product to anyone, anywhere, anytime? Like the scope of it just blew my mind. And I was investigating um, online retail. It was at its infancy in Australia. We definitely lagged the United States. There was some started and then got sold or, or stopped. At one point, I even owned the number plate eTail in, um, you know, like in 2002 or something. I was really early with that and I sold it. Um, I noticed a few other things. A competitor of mine, one of my, like one of my sort of enemies in the car industry, uh, like who, we started on the exact same day at Mercedes-Benz in 1997, and it was her versus me. And the boss said, listen, one of you is going to be a superstar. I just don't know which one. And I was like, game on. And she used to do direct response marketing. She used to send out gifts. She used to do PR. She was like a marketing machine. I noticed she had her own website, her own .com. So it was like, okay, she's telling me what to do here. Uh, so I went. I registered my own domain name .com in 2005. I presented a sales training for one of my clients, a financial planner, and I asked for my boss, "Is it okay if I deliver some sales training?" Because this guy had bought 13 cars from me, and he said, "Listen, James, whatever you've been doing to me, can you teach my my sales team how to do that for our clients? Because they suck, and you're awesome at this sales stuff." I went to my boss and I said, "Can I?" deliver a sales training presentation to this financial advisor. It's like a non-conflict. I'll do it on my day off. He said, yeah, but make sure you charge plenty. So I invoiced this guy $4,000 and he paid me and I used the whole $4,000 to buy a Toshiba laptop. And so now I was back in the game and I'd roll out this, like I'd say it's 10 feet worth of cord to the dial up 
And every night watching TV, I'd sit it on my lap and I'd figure out how to try and build a website. This is late 2005, early 2006. And I had a job at the time. Um, but I just, it was like this elusive challenge, like, can I build a website? And, and I went through different iterations of that. And I first started with an internet service provider. They provided a free sort of web page. I um, inadvertently got hooked into an affiliate program on ClickBank because I was searching for a Jay Abraham book. And I got name squeezed by uh, Rich Sheffran and Stephen Pierce had a squeeze page. I didn't even know what copywriting was, but it had all this like highlighted yellow words and bold and italicized things. It was very compelling. And they said, if I give away these reports of Jay Abraham, then I could get commission if people buy something from this ClickBank. And I joined it and I put my links all over the page and I didn't sell a single thing. But that was my sort of foray into it. It's so interesting. Uh, thank you for being so articulate in how that kind of the steps fell into place for you because it sounds like there was a little bit of things falling into place at the right time that your brain was able to conceptualize it and then act upon it and move in a direction that you sound intuitive enough that you kind of started moving in a direction that was natural for you, you know, with your, the skills that you had and then the competitive nature that sounds like you also have um, was driving you to create what now is super fast business. I mean, do you consider yourself an intuitive person? Are you making decisions off of that kind of gut feeling like, okay, this is right? I mean, you must have been doing pretty well for yourself at Mercedes. Um, I would imagine cutting that cord probably wasn't easy. Yeah, it was like this This was a fascinating thing because, yeah, I'm very pragmatic. Uh, I'm innovative. I've, I've read at least 3,000 books. You know, like from the time I was 12, I started reading books on selling. I – all the way through sales, sales management, I read everything I could find. I'm, I'm an avid researcher. And then I would incorporate it. But the thing that confounded me the most was just how hard it was to start an online business. I mean, it was brutal. I'm thinking, I, I don't get it. I make 300 grand a year as a general manager, and I've got this army of staff. I had 70 staff. But by night, I'm like a one-man business, and I can't even build a freaking website, and I certainly can't make any sales. It took me nine months to make my first commission, and it was only by accident to myself through my wife's affiliate link. So it was like it was exciting and then a letdown when I discovered how I'd made it. But from there, I started making little tiny sales. And then like I'd be at soccer games with my kids and talking to other parents, and then I'd do like assisted sales. I'd, I'd like, you know, you could build your own website if you have this software. Let me, let me show you. I'd be at, like at their house on their laptop trying to guide them to my site and make an affiliate sale. Like it was like super minimum viable product, unscalable. And even with my first affiliate site, I had my Skype number on the website. And I'm like, if you, if you want to Skype me and ask me about it, just do that. And my bonus was like ridiculous value for people. I'd, I'd literally build their website for them for my $49.25 commission. Uh, so I started off difficult. And I think some people want it to be too easy or, or they have this magical belief that they'll have some autopilot riches from the beginning. It just doesn't work that way. And it was such a struggle. And then I had to apply over time. I had to re basically replicate what I had as a general manager in my own business and it took quantum leaps in mindset to scale up to that point and yes quitting my job was um, extremely difficult in one sense but also 
one of the most emotionally liberating things I've ever done where I took ultimate responsibility for my destiny. It's like cutting that umbilical cord was like being birthed and now I have to stand on my own. I'm not getting that nutrient from the mothership and I had to make a pact to myself that I will be responsible for my future. I will continue to innovate. I will do what needs to be done because there's no turning back from this. Uh, and I'm absolutely unemployable now. And there's no question about that. I love the commitment. And you alluded to the $300,000 Aussie annually you were making. Did you have a goal set for yourself for when that umbilical cord could be cut? Like what was the number that you felt yeah, safe? To I had to replace that? my income. So you had to get to 300000 before you're going to quit. Oh, yeah, wow. but there's a little problem with that one. The problem is as you approach it, you're actually making quite a lot more. <laughs> so, okay. you know, up until six weeks before I quit my job, I was making about one hundred and fifty grand a year online and three hundred and sixty or, or 300000 with my regular job. So I was kind of making 450000 mm. And And I had to bet that I could – you know, more than make up for it. Uh, but within a month of leaving, I was making $100,000 a month. And since July 2009, uh, sorry, July 2008, I've never made less than 100 grand a month in any month, ever. Congratulations. What an accomplishment. Thank you. Yeah, it's like I, I'm very consistent and I built business models that have this sustainable repeatable, reliable income, like almost all of it's recurring income. And I learned my lesson in that first six months because I had a little bit of a wobble where um, I was making really good money as a super affiliate and then I sent a company broke because I sold so much of their stuff they couldn't fulfill and they had this backlash of cancellations and chargebacks and and it and it basically they couldn't they just couldn't supply and they burned themselves and then they defaulted on the last commission checks of mine and I got caught uh, with the the advertising payments. So I sort of came into the end of the year at Christmas time, like cash flow just like dropping right down. So I had to start different business models and it was just after that I started my membership. And uh, the whole time in the meantime though, I had multiple – ways that I was making the money. Thankfully, I've never been single model dependent. So at that time, I was doing CPA marketing. I was doing um, retainer services as a digital marketing specialist. I had my info product and I had affiliate income, uh, you know, in addition. But since then, I, I've had my memberships. And now I've got like f four or five different levels of, of recurring income memberships that supplement my income. And uh, and I still do affiliate marketing to this day. I never stopped the whole time, which is good. I think it's an important part of revenue stream for most businesses. Now, when you talked about earlier, you know, your your day to day and how you work from the East Coast back, um, you talked about memberships. So the audience understands you're talking about, you know, groups, membership. Can you just talk about a membership and what that means for the people who are listening, like different levels of what people pay you a monthly fee? reoccurring to be a part of a membership group that then you jump in and help people with? Exactly that. Um, but you can dial a mix. Um, you can have business to consumer, business to business. You can have people paying you monthly or annually or, or other. You can um, be heavily involved or not too involved in terms of what you have to deliver. You can have a high, high or low price points. 
you can be group or individual. So, so you can dial a mix. So there's no rule book on this. I'm currently writing a book on this exact topic, so it's top of mind. I have memberships that are uh, – I've got a membership that's $10 a month. I've got a membership that starts at 5000 a month. I've got a membership that's $99 or $599 per month. And I've also got uh, revenue share deals, which in my mind is kind of like um, – a partnership or a silent partner of someone's business for a recurring performance fee. So that amount changes every single month depending on my uh, ability to impact the revenue of that business. How do you regulate your value proposition at each price point? I mean, you seem like a guy who's going to give it your all no matter what they're paying. So, you know, somebody's paying 5,000 a month versus the $5 a month. And it sounds like you're very active, you know, daily with a lot of these people. I mean, what, how do you do that? It does sound like that, but uh, I've really got it down to a fine art now and because, you know, you got to – with the context, I've been doing this since 2007. I've had memberships since then. Um, so if you if you do something for over 10 years, you get a, a routine. <laughs> like I, I like conversing with people and helping them solve their problems, so that's, that's good. I'm not a good typist, so I tend to just dictate. Uh, technology's really leaned into my corner for that. And because I now have a strong body of work, it's easy for me to refer someone to an answer rather than have to create it each time. Um, the higher level ones, they're going to get more access to me. So they might get an individual call with me. Uh, they certainly get some group elements. And uh, also they have homework to do. They've got things to do. So, you know, like that old story about the brewery that, it has a broken pipe and the guy comes out to fix it and gets $10,000 and the guy goes, but you just hit it, hit a pipe with a hammer. And he goes, yeah, but I knew which pipe to hit. Um, so your intellectual property can become quite valuable. I help people do the right things. So it's, I'm not getting paid on the time that I work. I'm not getting paid on the quantity of gigabytes of downloads that I send people. I'm getting paid on the performance I can help them achieve. And that could be as simple as, as saying the right sentence at times. Um, but I do have a really strong gap analysis process so that it makes it pretty easy for me to help them, uh, you know, fix the things that are broken. We, we, not only can I help them find what's broken, but I usually know the solution because I've seen the solution many times. And the average person in my higher level program has a $3 million per year revenue. So I've got a pretty good access to data points in terms of what's actually working. Now, did you help them achieve that $3 million a year or is that something that came in and you're helping them take it to, you know, an eight-figure business? Um, eight-figure businesses are rare. There's only a handful I've done of those. My sweet spot is going from six to seven. Uh, you know, to, to come into that program these days, I'm looking for someone to be doing at least half a million dollars a year. And whatever they're doing at that point, I can help them dramatically because the more momentum they've got, the easier it is for me and the more results they get. It's like they come along to me with a Ferrari and they only know there's three gears and I show them fourth, fifth, and sixth. And they're like, wow. And, you know, all I have to teach them is how to push the clutch in and change it into this spot and let the clutch out and then hit the accelerator and the results blow us away. There have been a handful, though, I've seen go from, from you know, startup. I've done a few startups. It's not my sweet spot or my favorite thing to do. Um, but guys like Ezra Firestone, for example, he was 
probably making a hundred and something thousand dollars a year when we started, and he's he's probably doing over thirty million dollars a year in revenue. But his business is more than likely worth sixty, seventy million dollars, and we've seen that go from zero. So you know they're good accomplishments. Had a few people go from a million dollars to ten million dollars. So the more they bring to the table, the more results I can get for them. But in my lower tier memberships, so I, I want them to be making ten grand a year before we start in that mid membership. And if they are, then we can easily get to hundreds of thousands in the fairly short term. And my newest membership, I don't, I don't have any minimum criteria. I mean, it's ten bucks a month. And yes. I do put my heart and soul into whatever I do, but that membership is a really minimal feature membership. It's it's like, have you ever seen those push bikes that don't even have brakes? They're called fixies, I oh, think. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, like really minimal. They, they've got pedals and two wheels and they can get you from A to B. I've got a stripped down light version membership and it's only got one feature and no, uh, there's no courses, there's no calls, there's not, the only feature is it's a Q&A membership. They can ask a question and they'll get an answer. They can ask as many questions as they want. Every question will get an answer and that works. And I've found that's, that's creating success stories and those people can then mature up into other levels of membership. Beautiful. When you talked about you know having dictation be part of your business model, is that how you wrote your book? Was it called? Definitely. Work less, yeah, I'm not a writer. So... To write a book, you can either point people to existing trainings or podcasts, episodes, um, or they ask you pointed questions and then you can just talk. Um, so I, use, I just use Orphonic. I hit record. I talk my answer and then I send it off to my uh, helper, my ghost writer slash editor slash genius, and she just knocks it all into shape. So it's my voice and my words and my IP but it's been massaged into readable words by someone competent. Uh, and it's not my strength. I see. And your book's like kind of half biography, half like a step-by-step to success? On purpose, we wanted to put some stories to make it easily relatable. Uh, so the metaphors are quite handy to explain what's happening, but it's extremely actionable because every chapter has action steps. And so I liked you know, story is the easiest way to sell. It's like why, you know, we learn our nursery rhymes and stuff and, and they have little little songs for, you know, crossing the road safely and that sort of stuff. So putting the stories in makes it highly readable and digestible instead of being dry, which would have been my natural tendency. So it's, you know, the influence of pulling the stories out of me has come from elsewhere. And uh, I'm, I'm now across that, but 10 years ago I didn't really get it. Hmm. I thought people just want – they just give me the bullet points. That's how I, I operate. Uh, but people do like stories. So I've worked I've actually worked hard on developing um, the ability to find my stories and share them because it makes it more compelling and people get the lesson. No, that's cool, man. I was You came on my radar about a year and a half ago because you host retreats like in desirable places with surf because I know you love to surf. So I was like, oh, you should check out James Schramke. You should reach out to that guy. And it wasn't until recently that I finally was like, yes, I need to finally reach out. We need to connect. Um, you, run a ret- you run one of your retreats in the Maldives and surfing is incorporated into the retreat. Is that correct? Or is that just an option for the guests who come and participate? No, it's like we're on a boat. It's parked next to a surf break. If you like surfing, go for it. If you like scuba diving, do that. Uh, it's like What's included is food and accommodation and 
um, a once-a-day business chat. And um, and in between then, you can just talk to whoever you want, do whatever you want, sunbake, sleep, read, whatever, whatever you want, bury yourself on a laptop. Uh, some trips I've been on, because I've done this for about, I don't know, five years, and I've spent two weeks a year, three or four of those times. Some weeks – there's a few, quite a few surfers, and then other times there's like three. Well, the least I've had was two, which yeah. is great. Like <laughs> me and the other guy surf three times a day, and the other people do whatever the other people do. They, everyone has a great time though, and uh, and some people love scuba diving. Seems to be surfers and scuba divers are the the two core groups. The surfing's free and it's included, uh, and it is a great surf spot as you would well know. Uh, so yeah. It, it originally started as a surfing trip, and then I rebranded it as a as a um, mastermind, and then I rebranded it after that as an experience. So I've I've learnt and adapted as I go. When it was branded a surfing trip, people who didn't surf wouldn't think about it because they thought it was only for surfers. When I branded it as a mastermind, one guy, only one, thought that this is like we're going to sit in in a classroom for eight hours a day talking business. And that would be a freaking nightmare <laughs> to me. So, yes, I talk about business the whole time I'm on the boat anyway, but I like the unstructured, informal nature of it. So we do have a one-hour session with a structured format that is extremely successful because uh, it provokes thought and stimulates ideas and it does provide a platform to cross-pollinate but it also gives you that space and the thing that's missing from most retreats and most uh, workshops uh, courses masterminds or um, presentation events is there's just not enough space you go there and and if, if you were to go to some of the bigger events, you'll see the bulk of activities, people in the hallway or the coffee shop or the restaurant across the road talking. So why not create, why not build that into the program? Absolutely. How long ago did you find surfing? Uh, about seven or eight years ago when I was with Ezra and uh, we did a Hawaii retreat on the North Shore and we had, I think, three or four students paid to come and we rented a house next to Pipeline and we did uh, business. We did business discussions each day, but we also did experiences. We went and ate sushi. We went stand up paddleboarding. Uh, we did yoga. Uh, we ate healthy things, and uh, it was a great experience. And we went and we climbed up the top of the mountain and look at the sunset. That sort of stuff. When it was finished, Ezra uh, and I were just at the hippie commune where he grew up um, part time. That was our holiday house, and I was staying there. And he grabbed a foamy and chucked it in the back, and we drove down to to probably um, it must be Rocky Point or somewhere like that. And he just took off his shirt and paddled out on a foamy. I'm like, I thought maybe this guy's going to be lost. I've lost him forever. And he was he was having a great time. And then we went around to Chun's Reef, and it was him, his wife Kerry, and I, and we all paddled out on this one foamy that were well, with the one foamy. And he said, when you fall, make sure you put your arms out wide and fall flat. I'm like, why? He goes, oh, because there's a razor-sharp reef underneath. You know, I'm like, is this where you bring people to learn to surf? And, um, you know, I think I paddled for a wave and and he pushed me onto it a bit and I stood up for like a microsecond and I was like, wow, that was kind of exhilarating but really hard. And when I got back to Sydney, 
he spoke to a friend of his who had an online surfboard supply shop, and uh, this guy brought around a, a nine foot two fun board for me, and it just fit in my elevator. I lived on the front row at Manly Beach, and it just fit in the elevator. And I took it out every day and sort of taught myself to surf. And I broke a rib. I got smashed around. My all my rib cage was sore. I, um, got held under a few times. I, I broke the fiberglass where the leg rope was pulling on it. I, I, I gashed myself on the fin. I got s- stitches in my face from smacking the deck. Like it was this absolutely brutal thing. Shouldn't take up surfing when you're 42 years old. It's my main tip there. But I just stuck with it and I pretty much surfed every day since unless I'm traveling or whatever or, or somewhere that I'm landlocked. And these days I'm really, you know, I'm really improving and getting into the, the sweet spot where it's super enjoyable. I'm having fast rides and and edging so close to, to getting barreled. <laughs> but it's, you know, I feel like I'm just, I'm probably about 15 years old in Grom years, maybe 14. Uh, that's how, that's my froth level at the moment. That's rad, dude. I know we don't have much time, but I have a few more questions. Is there any relationship that you can draw uh, from between surfing and business that you a million take so lessons? many? It's ridiculous. Yeah, like can you just tell my audience one thing that you think significant? Wave selection, like business selection, choosing the right business. Yeah, like maybe to start with the the you know once in a lifetime ideas come along every five seconds. If you if you're a competent marketer and you're online, there, there's literally a million things you could do. Like every wave, you think, oh, I'll take that. But most of them are going to be a closeout or you won't, you'll paddle for it and miss it and burn up all your energy. If you can pick the right wave, you'll get, you know, the nice long ride with the good shape uh, without seven other people on it. That's a winner. So I, I think that's one of the most valuable lessons I've learned is picking the right opportunities like doing the right things is so critical the other one is you can't abdicate responsibility when you're surfing you have to do the work you you have to put yourself in the position you're responsible for the outcome you either get the ride of your life or you get like a three-wave hold down and belt it around the bottom of the ocean floor Um, and you and only you are responsible and mother nature is like life it's constantly changing like it blows my mind that I can surf in similar spots all year and hardly ever get the same conditions. Beautifully said. If you could speak to one audience member who's listening, who's been inspired by what you had to say and maybe thinking about starting their first business, is there one thing you could say to maybe inspire them to take that first step if they're afraid? Uh, well, it's normal to be afraid. Like Nam Baldwin, the, the mindset coach and coach to a lot of the elite surfers, says uh, he's got an acronym NEAT. It's normal. Uh, expect it, accept it, and then tidy up. Like just start. You will get beaten and bludgeoned. Like there will be bruises and cuts. You will have um, mistakes and failures, but you can't start that process until you start. So just get into it and and be okay with change. Like this notion of having every, all your ducks in a row and everything lined up and everything's going to be just right before you start, I think that holds people back. So that you know, just start. I've still got minimum version of my products out there after years and years because I just started. I think I'm still updating the resources page for my book, you know, which was out two years ago, but I just published it. Like just get it out there, make sure it's reasonable, like a minimum standard, and then start because whatever you start won't 
be where you finish. And if you look back to the history we've talked about for my own business, it's changed so many times over the last decade because it's a pretty dynamic marketplace. The one thing I've been consistent with is being cool with change and paying attention to what the needs of my audience are and making sure that I can continue to be relevant for them. Beautifully said, James. Thank you for your time. Appreciate you. Cool. Awesome, James. Thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate your time. Love the story. Just hearing that step-by-step process that you used to grow your business, the twists and turns that it's taken you throughout the years of getting into the online business space. I always just really, really appreciate the, the nuanced details of a person's story and how they actually had this one event happen that turned them in this direction or how they had, like you spoke about that competition with a colleague while you were selling cars. Like I love that detailed nuance. It just really paints a beautiful picture of how this is actually accomplished with years of perseverance and being willing to adapt and change. So thank you again so much. And for you, the listener, please, again, if you like this episode, James and I would appreciate it if you shared it with somebody you think would get something out of it, somebody who maybe is interested in starting an online business or just might need that little bit of extra hope right now in this crazy time we're all living in with COVID where a lot of people don't know where that income is going to come in next. Online entrepreneurship is a very interesting, viable way to make money. It's not easy. For some of you, it's going to be a longer road than others, but it's definitely worth taking a look at. So again, thank you for listening. Please hit subscribe. We'd love a five-star rating. Commenting is always wonderful. I think you all are so very beautiful and look forward to seeing you in next week's episode, Monday, 9 a.m. Take care. Ciao. Thank you for listening to Misfits and Rejects. I hope this inspires you to think about your life situation, where you're at, and possibly make a big decision to choose something different for yourself if you're unhappy with where you're at in life. I hope these people that I interview inspire you to go out, spread your wings, and try something new, to live a different lifestyle that maybe your whole life people were telling you was the wrong one, but when in fact it's the perfect one for you. And I'll see you next time.